Well, friends, for the first of Lord willing many times in the weeks ahead, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, where this morning we get to take our first steps into the epic story that ends with Israel's greatest king, King David, ruling on a throne in Jerusalem over a united kingdom at rest from war with its enemies. I wonder, as you flip over to 1 Samuel, where would you expect a story like that to begin? Maybe you'd expect the story of Israel's greatest king to begin something like Lord of the Rings. You know, where, where, the, where, where the starting point is, is chaos. A chaos before the return of the king. When there was no king over Middle Earth. When each area did for its own. and Just tried to stay out of the way at best. And at worst tried to scoop up as much territory as possible. All the while evil spread its fingers across the land. That's pretty much the situation in Judges. We talked about that last week. But, but 1 Samuel, which begins in the time of the Judges, doesn't actually mention that backdrop. Maybe you'd expect it to begin something like the Lion King. You know, where, where at, the, at the very beginning, what you get is the boyhood of the great king. It starts with Mufasa, but, but you know, Simba's going to be the, the Lion King. That's the one it's all about. We, we get to see him as he's becoming Simba. As he's inheriting from a good king, his father, the ways of good kings. As he's experiencing the things that are going to make him who he is and, and lead to a reign that will be good for all the land, whatever they called it. I mean, we're going to get some David backstory soon enough. But not yet, not at the start. In, in fact, we don't even begin this story with Samuel, the man who's, whose name is on the book. The man who would anoint David as king. He appears in this story we'll look at today, but it doesn't begin as a story about him either. Friends, we have, we have much to learn about the point of this story from the fact that it begins far away from the halls of power, far from the noise of battle, and what you might call the inner world, of one obscure and desperate woman named Hannah. As one friend put it, it's like the, the first falling rock that leads to the tumbling avalanche that ends in monarchy and peace and David and the hope of a greater David still to come. All of it started by the falling rock of a desperate prayer from a desperate woman who went to her God with her problems. The story of David begins with the story of Hannah and in another way with the story of faith. Hannah's faith, the faith we'll look at today. Hannah's, Hannah's faith is precisely the faith that Israel will need to be rescued out of their mess. It's precisely the faith that Israel's kings would need if they're gonna rule well for God's glory and not just for their gain. And it's the kind of faith that we need to claim all that God offers to us through Jesus. Now this story, the story of Hannah and her faith, it, it's going to unfold for us in three parts. I want you to think about each part of this story as holding up her faith into a different light. What does it look like in this light? Turn it a little bit. How about in this light? A little bit further this way. How about in that light? What does true faith look like 
in the different circumstances it encounters in this life. It's one thing to tell us we need to have faith. It's another thing to to show us the sort of faith that we need as it works itself out in the real world. And that's what Hannah's story does for us. What does faith look like facing problems you can't solve? That will be point one. What does faith look like facing gifts that God has given? That'll be point two. And what does faith look like facing promises not yet fulfilled? That'll be point three. First, I want to read to you the beginning of this story. I want to ask you to stand with me in in honor of God's word as I do that. I'm going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And for now, I'm going to read uh, just through the end of, of verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice wasn't heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've I've been speaking out of my great anxiety. And vexation. 
Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is God's word. You can be seated. Point number one this morning. What does faith look like facing problems you can't solve? Hannah shows us. Faith looks like desperate dependence. The curtain of this story opens on an unexceptional village in the hills of northern Israel where there lived an unexceptional man named Elkanah who had two wives named Hannah and Penina. But the scene is set by the simple statement at the end of verse 2. Penina had children. Hannah had no children. And with that statement, this story ushers us out of that hill country, out of that village life, out of that ancestry given in verse 1, and straight into the heart of this woman, Hannah, who is living her own personal nightmare. Her barrenness in her culture would have brought her crushing shame. The value of women in this culture was all too often tied to their ability to produce children, especially their ability to produce sons. And if your worth is tied to the sons you produce and you haven't produced any sons, what are you worth? And whatever shame her barrenness may have brought to her, it certainly and understandably brought onto her shoulders a deep, a heavy, a debilitating grief. In fact, in the sections that I read, you might even say her grief and her overwhelming anxiety is the theme that ties the story together. It comes out in verse 6. She wept. She wouldn't eat. She was so broken. She couldn't, she couldn't feed herself. It's in verse 10. She was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. And in verse 16, she puts her own words to the storm that's raging inside of her, which she calls her, her great anxiety and vexation. And, and on top of her shame and on top of her grief, making it all worse, Hannah is alone. Hannah is completely alone. Each character that's introduced in this story just makes things worse for her. Did you notice? Penina is no comfort, that's for sure. In verse 6, she's called her rival. And her rival takes every opportunity to rub it in. As Penina's children grow and grow in number, she just has more material to work with every year when it's time to go back up to, the, to, to Shiloh for the sacrifice. She throws it right back in her face. Hannah still had no children. Another year passed. Meanwhile, Elkanah, her husband, I mean, seems like he genuinely does love her, but he doesn't get her grief at all. This guy is clueless. Did you notice? It's hard, it's hard to imagine how we could let him off the hook for verse 8. Why do you weep and not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I don't know if that sounds stunning to you or right about on brand, but... 
But we are meant to see this man as an outsider to the grief of his wife. He's thinking, I'm a catch. I give you a double portion of meat every year. I love you lots and lots and lots. You're a lucky girl to have a man like me. Even worse, he's basically saying to her, I'm not bothered anymore by your barrenness. Why are you? Almost certainly he, he married a second wife to solve his barrenness problem. I've got heirs now. I got Penina. I'm not bothered anymore. Why are you? And then there's Eli, the priest in the tabernacle in Shiloh. A man whose job was to connect the people to the goodness, the power, and the promises of their God. A man who was meant to help them relate rightly to him. And he gets it completely wrong. He sees her in her grief. He sees her praying near the entrance to the tabernacle. And when he sees her, he scolds her. He thinks she's drunk and babbling on. Verse 14, put your wine away from you. That's how he responds to her in her time of trouble. It's meant to be laughable, his ignorance, his insensitivity. But, but beneath it all, friends, for Hannah, surely the greatest burden and perhaps her greatest temptation was to feel isolated from, left alone by, her God. See, Hannah is a believer in the God of Israel. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Moses. The God who heard his people when they were enslaved in Egypt. The kind of God who, hearing his people cry out, can turn rivers to blood. Can bring down locusts and frogs on a whim. The kind of God who has complete control over every aspect of this world that he made. She believes in that God. A God who she knows rules over her womb. There is no accident that the text twice mentions in verse 5 and verse 6 that the Lord closed her womb. Why would he do that? He's the one who told Adam and Eve and Israel to be fruitful and multiply. He basically commanded his people to fill the earth with kids. He's the one who said children would be how his promise to Abraham moves forward, growing him into a family more numerous than the stars in the sky. He's the one who said that children are a blessing from the Lord. Why would God close my womb? Where is my blessing? It's no wonder that Hannah Responding to Eli describes her inner world as great anxiety and vexation. What's inside her is a hurricane of grief and fear and deep distress. What a picture, friends. What a picture of what, of what anxiety feels like right here. I'm on my own and I can't handle this. Can you relate? Maybe, 
Maybe you can relate not just to what she's feeling, but to why she's feeling this way. If you have suffered from infertility, I know this story already at this point is surely churning up deep grief and confusion that you have lived with and perhaps live with as a presence each day. And of course, our, I mean, I know our setting is different from hers. Our culture's expectations are different from theirs. But at its core, the pain of this suffering is timeless. And so are the questions that it raises. So if that's what you're thinking about right now, before I go any further into this story about Hannah, I just want to say a couple of things to you. Hannah's suffering was not her fault and neither is yours. And you may have a lot to grieve. You do have a lot to grieve. But you have nothing to be ashamed of. And you have every reason to hope. Just like Hannah did. I, I don't know what God is doing in your life today. But I do know what God is doing in your life overall. And I do know where all of this is headed. One day, in his time, when death is swallowed up by victory, anything we have lacked along the way will be swallowed up too by his fullness. Let me put it another way. God will not waste your pain. It will become in time, a theater for his glory where you will see things of his beauty and power you could not have seen otherwise. And he will be with you until that day. In the meantime, I want you to also know your suffering is not yours to bear alone. Our church is full of friends who have been where you are and it's full of even more friends who even if they haven't been there are headed where you're going and who have accepted willingly the responsibility of helping you get there, of reminding you as you remind them that Christ will come again, and when he does, every tear will be wiped away. Maybe you, maybe you haven't experienced the specific cause of Hannah's anxiety, but surely you can relate to this anxiety itself, right? Anxiety what it's like to struggle with it. What it feels like to be up against something huge, like something that's just, it's too big, but matters to you deeply and is way beyond your influence. What do you do in a situation like that? What do you do when you're facing a problem you can't solve? What does faith look like in that circumstance? Look at what Hannah does in verse 10. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What makes Hannah a model right here? She kept a stiff upper lip, kept calm and carried on. Knew better than to let the troubles of life get her down. No. This trouble definitely got to her. Maybe is she a model because she counted her many blessings? She named them one by one. Her own version of few of my favorite things approach. 
to what's got you down? No. What did she do? She prayed through her tears. That's what she did. She spoke to God out of her great anxiety and vexation. She took her problems, the problems that were too big for her to solve, and brought them to God as if he cares. That's what makes Hannah a model. That's what faith looks like. Desperate dependence on the only God there is. Friends, when you're facing problems you can't solve, the key to faith is not whether you experience anxiety, but how you deal with it when you do. You could feed it. That would look like focusing on the problem on one hand or on your own resources on the other. That's big, I'm little. That feeds anxiety. You could go that way. Or you could choose to fight it by taking that problem to God. That's what Hannah does. I think this is a story story form of what Paul calls for in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. That's where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. And anyone who's ever struggled with anxiety receives that like a punch to the face. (laughs) I would love not to be anxious. Aren't you blaming the victim here, Paul? Give me something I can work with. And he does. Don't be anxious, I think there means. Don't feed this anxiety. Instead... In everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. That's when you'll experience his peace. See, Paul, just like Hannah, just like me and you, Paul knew what it was to deal with anxiety. One of my favorite places in all of Paul's letters was 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he lists off all the things that it had cost him to to travel around the world telling people about Jesus. He was thrown into jail many times. He was beaten more times than he could count, often near to death. He was stoned and shipwrecked and lived his life on the road, surrounded by danger from robbers and rivers and, and weather. He was hounded by people who hated him wherever he went. And he said in verse 28, on top of all of that, apart from these other things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. His stressor was not what might happen to him, but what would become of the churches and the friends that he left all over the Roman world. He had that stress here, pressure on the chest. What did he do with it? Well, if you read around in his letters, you know what you'll find in almost all of them? Prayers that he prayed for those churches. (laughs) He took that stress he was feeling for these churches that were so precious to him. And he turned them into specific prayers for those churches to carry on in faith beyond his reach. And if you're struggling with anxiety today and you're sick and tired of it and you don't know where to begin to break the cycle, the most practical first step you can take is to get your anxious thoughts out of your head and down on paper. Then turn those thoughts into prayers you can pray to the God who cares. Be as specific in your prayers to him as you are in all the possibilities that spin out in your mind. Turn your problems, turn your concerns, turn all those terrible possibilities into prayers that you offer to God. You might consider, if you don't know where to begin, if even that feels too abstract, you might consider starting with some of the Psalms. Use their words to pray your prayers to God. You can find excellent prayers to pray in Psalm 6, 
Psalm 38, Psalm 42 and 43, probably my favorite on this list. Or, Or Psalm 130, we sang a version of it earlier in our service. These are prayers prayed from deep despair and anxiety and offered up to God as if he cares Asking him to deliver what we can't deliver for ourselves. Use them. They're recorded so that you can use them. And friend, if you're here today and, and you, you're, you're, you're here to evaluate what it means to be a Christian and you want to know more about who Jesus is and what Christians see in him, why, why they turn to him, I, I want to tell you that, that you're getting a clue to that here in 1 Samuel in this, this faith that Hannah is showing us. Hannah is innocent in her suffering. And you might think, well, that's why God would listen to someone like her. She's up against it. She did nothing wrong. Everybody's against her too. That's the kind of person God would hear. And that's right. He does hear the desperate prayers of a person like Hannah. But the Bible is also crystal clear that God hears the desperate prayers of sinners too. People who haven't had anything for him until they got to where they didn't have anywhere else to turn. Christians know they don't deserve God's grace, but they can't live without it either. That's really what it is to be a Christian. Christians don't come to God with, hey, look what I brought you. Here, take this. Christians come to God like Hannah did, desperate. Our only hope that he hears the prayers of guilty people who are desperate, just as he hears the prayers of the innocent. And it's what we sang about in Rock of Ages earlier. Naked, I come to him for dress. Helpless, I look to him for grace. Foul, that's what I bring, but I go to the fountain. What does faith look like facing problems you can't solve? Problems that have happened to you and problems you've brought on yourself. It looks like desperate dependence on the only God there is. That's the first thing to notice from the story of Hannah and her faith. Here's the second. What does faith look like facing gifts that God has given? What does faith look like facing gifts that God has given? And Hannah shows us this too. It looks like grateful devotion. That's what it looks like. Where we left off, Hannah has poured out her soul to the Lord. And Eli once he figured out how wrong he was about her, speaks a blessing over her before she leaves. Let me pick up reading in verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she'd weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, 
and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The details of what happens from this point in the story are really straightforward. Hannah prays to the Lord. She pours out her soul before the Lord, and the Lord answers her. The Lord gives her a son. She names him Samuel as a kind of nod to what has happened. Verse 20, she asked for help from the Lord. The Lord heard her and helped her. But the most striking thing about this story is not that God heard her. The most striking thing is how she responds to him when he does. Once again, this story is meant to to hold up Hannah's faith. To show us what faith looks like. Now, not in response to problems we can't solve, but in response to God's blessing. How do we relate to him when he's been good to us? When Hannah first made this request of God, she, she made a vow as well. You give me a son, I'll give him back to you. She's referring to something called a Nazarite vow. It's laid out in the the law of Moses. It's where a person would would voluntarily separate themselves from normal life in some specific ways, like not cutting their hair. That's what that comment about the razor is. It was just ways to show their absolute devotion to the Lord. In this case, it wouldn't just be Samuel showing his devotion to the Lord. It was Hannah showing her devotion to the Lord. Look again, verses 26 to 28. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman. I'm the one who was standing here in your presence praying. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Over and over, she's putting the focus on the Lord. I prayed to him. He granted me the petition that I prayed for him. And therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Do you see what she's doing? She knows where this gift came from. Over and over and over she's saying it. The Lord did this. The Lord did this. The Lord did this. And she knows what this gift is for. It's for him. It's for him. It's for him. For Hannah, God is not a means to her ends. God is the end. She worshiped him in her grief. Now she worships him in her joy. We have to be so careful here, friends, not not to misread what this story is about. Hannah's in trouble. Hannah asks for help. Hannah gets what she wants. And if you ask like Hannah, you'll get what you want too, as long as you have as much faith as she did. That's not what the story's about. That's not what this story says. It's not true in our experience. It's not true to what the Bible teaches. God is not like that. He's not a vending machine who spits out what we ask for as soon as we put in the right change and hit the right buttons. He is God. The point isn't that those with true faith get to name it, whatever it might be, and then claim it, no matter what it is. The question behind the story is rather this. When you do get what you want, do you know where it came from? Do you know what it's ultimately for? See, Hannah's story is meant to give us a picture of the story of Israel. 
playing out now in microcosm in her life. And Israel was never in greater danger than when they were most obviously blessed by God's goodness to them. It's what we talked about last week in that cycle that plays out in Judges over and over again. Israel would cry out to God from their despair. Time and again, God would hear them. He'd raise up a judge to deliver them. He'd give them rest from their enemies. But then what would happen next? Same thing that happened in the wilderness, right after God delivered them from Egypt in the first place. They forgot. They forgot all about them. They forgot they needed them. They forgot where these good gifts came from. They forgot where these gifts were for. And we are every bit as vulnerable to sin and selfishness faced with blessing from God as we are when we're faced with suffering. It's just so easy to take good gifts for granted, to sort of bank them away as if, they've, as if they're necessary, as if they're inevitable, as if we can just move on now to the next quest on the list. It's so easy for us to slip into entitlement. Like we have what we have because we deserve it. And perhaps most dangerous of all, It's so easy for us, the more we have, to slip into more and more self-reliance. As if the more we have, the less we need God. That's why why we have to pay, as Christians, to grow in Christ. We have to pay as relentless attention to what's going on in our hearts when we receive good things from him as we do when we're suffering. I think most of us don't have a hard time paying attention to whatever's going on inside when we're grieving or stressed out. That's our good thing. But are you, are you paying attention too to how your heart relates to what's good? Be careful that your good gifts don't make you proud. It's 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that you haven't received? Why do you boast as if you have not received it? Be careful your good gifts don't make you greedy. All of us can be tempted to stockpile, to hoard, to build up more and more. And as that pile grows to feel better and better about who we are or where we are in life, as if these things can make us stable and secure and permanent, as if anything that we have is ours to keep. It isn't. Don't, don't, don't get greedy. And most of all, be careful your good gifts don't make you self-reliant. I think of Luke chapter 12 and Jesus' parable of the rich fool. You know, this guy who had a good crop one year, so good, he didn't even have a barn big enough to keep it all in. His solution to that problem was not to say thanks and to share it with others, but to build a second barn. <laughs> now we can fit it all in and then to stand back kind of like Scrooge McDuck in his big room full of coins and look at it all. <sighs> and he speaks to his soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So what? Thank the Lord? Share it with others? No. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> If you can't see yourself in that rich fool, you are in grave danger. Because under the influence of sin, friends, there, there, there can be this inverse relationship between the good things God gives us and how much we think about or rely on or love him. 
We can relate to God like we relate to, to our human parents. With human parents, it's actually appropriate that, that as the child grows, you know, the parent spends a lot of time giving and giving and giving. But as they grow, like the point of all that giving is that they become more and more independent. That they learn how to, how to live for themselves in the world. How to provide for themselves. And, and actually, as the parents spin themselves down and raising their kids up, by the end, the parents depend on the kids. And the kids provide what the parents need if it's, if it's healthy and working well. Sometimes we can relate to God like that. Where the more he gives, the less we need him. As if his gifts are about independence. As if they're about turning us loose to live in this world in the ways that seem best to us. But it's not supposed to be like that with God. And it's not that way for Hannah. Hannah gives her son back to God. That part, earlier, first reading this story over the years, that part has always kind of struck me. Like, it seems like now she's right back where she started. You know, she, she had no son. God gives her a son. Now she gives him back. She has no son again, in a way, functionally. This is a little kid, but she doesn't get to watch him grow up. She sees him maybe once a year when she goes to do her sacrifices in Shiloh. How is she not right back where she started? How has she gotten anywhere? She has gone from weeping to rejoicing. That's different. But, but in another way, nothing has changed. Hannah right here is every bit as dependent on God as she ever was. She, for Hannah, she can give this son right back to God because Hannah knows God is the gift that keeps on giving. God is the gift. Having him in your life, having him to provide, having him to hope in for the future, having God, that's the gift that keeps on giving. Her son Samuel is one more reason to know that God is worth trusting. But ultimately she trusts God and knows her life is in his hands right where she wants it to be. In other words, she's shown us what faith looks like when met with blessing. It looks like grateful devotion. I know this came from you and this is all for you. It came from you. Thank you for this. It's for you. Let me use this for what matters to you. So friends, do you know that everything you have comes from God and belongs ultimately to him? Your home, your money, your time, your marriage and your kids if you have them, your skills, your friendships, your health. All of it's from him. All of it's for him. How does that affect what you're doing with what you have? Well, we've seen what faith looks like facing problems we can't solve. And we've seen what faith looks like faced, facing gifts that God has given. To close this morning, I want to show you what faith looks like facing promises not yet fulfilled. And this is what we see in the song that Hannah sings at the beginning of chapter 2. It is beautiful. San, Hannah sings this song in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, a song that's, that's praise to God from her story, from what she's seen of God's grace, but, but it's actually bigger than just her story. It's like she's taking what she's been through and projecting it 
up onto a bigger screen into the story of Israel that'll play out in these books. And, and even beyond that, projecting it to the story of the whole world and what God will do through his son to make all things new. This is bigger than Hannah. And in this song, we see she knows that too. This is a song that serves as one of two bookends for the whole story. So First and Second Samuel are separated in our Bibles, but originally they weren't. It was one story, the book of Samuel. And it begins with a song from Hannah and ends with a song from David. Hannah's song looks ahead to what's coming. David's song looks back at what's happened, but they basically say the same things. And they're on the, uh, each end of this book as this kind of flashing strobe light saying, you want to know what these books are about? Look here. This is what the books are about. This is what you're supposed to take from these stories, all of them, through all their twists and turns. So what is this book about? By the end of this song, Hannah is looking to the future. And through it all, she is showing us that faith means confidence in what God does and the humility to let him do it. Look with me at this song. I'm going to walk you through it bit by bit. Verse 1. Hannah begins with her eyes squarely on the Lord. She prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Her eyes are on the Lord. And in verse 2, the truth about God that she's learned now from experience. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She knows there is no rock but God. No one else to help her with her problem. She came to the only rock there is. No one else to give thanks to for, for, for the help. She came to the, to the only rock there is. And now no one else to trust for her future but the only rock that there is. Talk no more so very proudly, she says in verse three. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. This is Hannah's story. But now she looks beyond it to what's coming next. The Lord kills and brings to life, verse six. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. This is bigger than Hannah now. Can you see that? She's looking up. She's looking beyond. She's looking to what we'll see play out in 1 Samuel. To Saul, raised up by God's power, then brought low again for his pride. To Goliath, who stood before the armies of the Lord and mocked them. Who will come out to fight me? Who has it in them? Who looked at little David and said, please come before me with stones the Lord brought him down she's looking ahead to David who will be raised up as not what anybody was looking for the youngest in his own family a shepherd by trade 
Not much to recommend him for the job that God was about to give him. He was chosen by God who saw his heart. And in Israel, throughout this story, they're going to be tempted again and again to lock in on power, on prestige, on like bankable assets that they know they can trust. Even making David something they can cling to as their, as their ultimate hope. And this right here is the message they're going to need to remember. The Lord's power is what matters. The Lord's favor, that's what matters. What God is doing to turn evil to good, what God is doing to raise the poor up into the throne, that's what matters. Remember him. But this story is bigger than David too. You can see it in the way she talks about it. Her her song is sketching out the ark of Jesus. It's Jesus who found his place, not among the rich and the powerful, but among the poor and the needy. Jesus, who had, who had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, who wasn't much to look at. He was despised and rejected by men. He was one from whom people would turn their faces away. They didn't want to look at him. He was mocked and despised by the powers that be. And when they tried to run him out of the world by hanging him on a cross above his head, they mocked him, king of the Jews. <laughs> look at this guy, this fraud. All the while playing into God's plan to make him king. Because the Lord brought his son down to the grave. And the Lord raised him up again. Jesus laid his life into dust and ashes, just like verse 8 says. And the Lord then puts him into the seat of honor, a throne at his right hand. The Lord did this. This is how he works. This is what he loves to do. He loves to turn things around. For those who trust him to be their God. And there is no depth of darkness, no power of evil that will stop him from doing what he does. Now this matters to us because Hannah's song looks further even still than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It ends by looking ahead to a day we're still waiting for. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord, Hannah sings, will be broken to pieces. Against them he'll thunder in heaven. The Lord will will judge the ends of the earth and give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She's now looking way ahead into the future. Into a promised day where everything is set right as it ought to be. Where anything that stands opposed to God's good plan for his good world is ruined forever. Is driven out. And his king exists in power unchecked unopposed we wait for that day how do we wait if that's what we're waiting for how do we wait for promises God has made but not yet fulfilled what does faith look like for us now it looks like Hannah's faith in this song humble confidence One writer says that one of the main tensions that plays out throughout this whole book of Samuel is the tension between grasping and giving. Between claiming what you want on your terms and receiving what God promised to you when he decides to give it to you. Will God's people spend their lives grasping for more of what they want, more of what seems best to them, more of what this world has to offer, or waiting for what God has promised to give them? That question is for us too. Our hope for the future can't be based on what we see in ourselves. And it can't be based on what we see around us and how good or bad things seem to be. It has to be based on who he is, 
on what he has said he will do for those who are humble enough to trust him to be the only rock that there is. Father, we pray to you now that you would give us this faith and hold it up. When there is so much still in us that that undermines the confidence that we ought to have. I pray that that this book of stories would reinforce our confidence in you as God, our rock. Week by week this fall, we pray that you would build up our foundation of faith. And we pray that you would hold us on until the end. Protect us from ourselves and from all in this world that stands against true and lasting faith. We look to you as the God who reigns and rules and loves to provide for those who trust in him. And we pray to you in the name of your son. Amen.